man. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Let's try that again. episode 18 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. On today's panel, we have Kenneth Coleman. Good evening. I'm Kevin McKelvin, and we are joined by Simon van Dijk. Hello, hello. And Theo Bonin. Hey, all. So, Simon, could you perhaps go ahead and introduce yourself just to the listeners? That's pretty open-ended. Um, <laughs> I love writing code. Um, I'm married to an uh, amazing woman. I work at Platform 45 with you. Um, I'm a South African. Um, I love food. What else? <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Theo? Cool. Um, I work for Driven Alliance. Very proud of that. Um, I've been doing software development professionally for about seven or eight years, mainly in the .NET space. Um, and and I've recently been loving Ruby and, and a lot of functional languages as well. So currently I'm very into functional languages. Cool. Well, we got you guys on tonight to talk about, well, I don't know if it's potions, wizardry, elixir. There's so many kind of metaphors going around in this space. So we're talking about the elixir programming language and I've, I've been following it loosely, but I know that the two of you have taken quite an interest in it. So, um, Perhaps we can start with the base question of what is Elixir in the programming language space and why would someone be interested in it? Cool. So Elixir is based on the Erlang VM or, or it runs on top of the Erlang VM or the Beam as, as, as it's referred to. And it's a functional language. Very, very, very awesome, awesome language. I think um, there are so many different things that Elixir gives you that other languages don't. So it's a functional language. It runs, it runs on the Erlang VM. And the cool thing about it is the Erlang VM has been battle-tested for so long. Sony Ericsson originally created it, um, I think, in the 80s. And it's been battle-tested. And when, when people talk about uptime in, in the Erlang VM, you're talking about you have systems running for years, not, not, not months or, or anything, years. Um, and with it, it's got the OTP, Open Telecommunications Platform, something like that. I can't remember the exact name. But you can then essentially go and do amazing stuff that normal languages are actually hard to do, like hot code swapping. You can literally deploy a new version of your code without bringing your application down and um, message passing and all of that stuff as well. So it's Elixir is, and then sorry, the the other part is Elixir. The a lot of there are a lot of complaints about programming in Erlang. Um, for a, a good example, is strings. Uh, strings aren't natively really supported. It's binary, so it's a just the binary characters um, coupled together. That's a string. Now Elixir goes and hides that away from you. But it's important to note that Elixir is still compiled back right back down to the Erlang bytecode, so it doesn't change at all. That's a couple of things. You led into that by talking about being a functional language. Is that going to break my brain like Haskell, or is it something further along the curve? So it's this kind of continuum that I've seen between, well, between imperative algorithmic languages through to 
functional and Haskell kind of being the, the pure functional language everyone looks at. So where does Elixir kind of lie on that continuum? Elixir is, it is a functional language. There's no two ways about it. Elixir is a functional language, but it's also not a very, very 100% pure language. Um, an example I can think of is no, uh, or immutability. So in a lot of functional languages, you can't go and say, let A equals one, and then right below that, let A equals two. You can't do that. With Elixir, you can. It is immutable. But um, what it actually goes and does is it hides that away from you. So you can change values, even though in reality it's it's mutable. Um, but piping, things like that, uh, functions are definitely first-class systems. So everything you get with a functional language, you do get with Alexa. So your mindset needs to change. You can easily go and write Ruby-style code. Uh, or OO style code in Elixir because it has the modules um, and and functions on the modules, but it is very much functional in in um, nature. Yeah, I'd like to just comment on the type system. So Elixir has um, it's dynamically typed, so the types are inferred at runtime, um, so that you'd think that they would put you in the way of a whole class of um, issues, but they do have something called a type spec where you can specify types. Um, and they, they actually use this quite cleverly. You can um, write type spec tests. Um, you know, what really stands out for Elixir for me is actually the fact that it runs on Erlang. Because initially I thought, okay, well, it's a new language. Why don't they sort of uh, make their own path but what makes Elixir really shine is the fact that it runs on Erlang. Um, and it's, you know, by, by definition, then inherits all the good and bad stuff from Erlang. And it basically takes the bad stuff and it replaces it with good stuff. <laughs> so it's all good. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's a urban legend, but it's definitely a good story that uh, the guys that were tasked with developing Beam and, and Erlang and it comes to that, like Theo, you were saying, systems that are up for years. The mandate was to make a platform that can be deployed to cell phone towers and or any kind of like telephone switching networks. <clears throat> and they must be able to replace the code without dropping calls. So old calls need to be running on the old software and any new calls coming through the switch will start running on the new code. And this just needed to happen day in and day out. And that's where why they built things the way they did and the hot code reloading and all this kind of stuff. Just as like a, maybe an urban legend, but it definitely makes for a good story. Um, I don't think it's an urban legend at all. Actually, by design, um, the, the code, all the code that runs in the Erlang VM is encapsulated in what's called a process. And it's, it's not unlike a OS process, but it's a lot more lightweight. So what they do is they spawn many of these different processes in order to um, run all the, the work. Um, and these processes are complete, they share completely different memory. So they can be um, garbage collected um, like independently of one another. So there's no global uh, garbage collection pauses. Um, <clears throat> and the way that it does the hot code swapping is using um, a supervision tree. So you have this hierarchy of processes that interact with 
with one another through messages, but these processes are obviously virtual, like I said. Um, and what happens when you replace the code, it just essentially kills the process and starts a new process with the new code. Yeah, so I mean, a, a simple example of that would be the, the agent. So what happens is the agent can be used as a rudimentary way to um, save state and get state across processes. So that's that's one of the cool things about the OTP. Um, it, 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 like I mentioned earlier, it's the open telecommunications, telecommunications protocol or something like that. But it, it, it just gives all the goodness. But it's, so essentially, you can go and write an agent, um, a get. And as you do that get again or a put, you can actually go and put a new function in it, but the state in there stays the same. So the next time you do the get, it still works off the same state and it gets your your new data, uh, uh, it gives your new function. So you can actually go and update that function inside of there. So you obviously need to program very defensively, then your function can't just change a hell of a lot if it can get replaced at any time and the data stays, well, stale for lack of a better word, but it's at least the same data that it was running with the previous time. Well, isn't that a point where you just need good encapsulation between functions? So where this came from was the telecommunications world, right? Where you had calls running and you didn't want to drop calls. And that's very much analogous to how we've got web servers, we've got requests coming in and we don't want to drop requests that are currently being handled, but new requests must be handled by the new code where requests that are currently being processed should still return from the old code. So I find there's a interesting point there where you've got this perhaps old language. I mean, this, this comes out of the 1980s, I think, relatively old, that was solving a problem in that time that's still very similar to what we're trying to solve today. Yeah, I think one one of the things that's very funny is people talk about, um, you know, my my web server can handle X amount of, of, of open connections. And if you look at the stats on Elixir, it's just crazy. I, I'm sure everybody was going to bring this up, but I, I might as well. WhatsApp had the 16 developers, you know, when they were bought by Facebook and that runs on the Erlang VM. And it's just, you can imagine the amount of connections being opened up. And all of this was maintained by 16 developers. So the problems we had back then with the communications is, is creeping up again now with all our, you know, messenger clients like Facebook Messenger and the WhatsApp. It's insane. You can't even imagine the amount of connections that needs to go through it. And Elixir just, or Erlang just handles it seamlessly. Yeah. We saw some of those stats coming out of WhatsApp because they're running on Erlang, right? So. Uh, where they were running 2 million connections to one box being served out of one box. Now, obviously, that would require recompiling kernels to support those kinds of numbers because I don't think the the normal limit is based on size of the integer in the kernel. But Elixir, or rather Erlang, the Erlang VM, was able to handle that. Yeah, I actually know another use case or a common use case for Erlang is um, backend system for for MMOs. Um, there was a great talk at the the last ElixirConf by this dude that writes um, backend systems for for like online games, and he explained how Erlang is a perfect fit for um, uh, sort of the the user login presence, 
um, chat, all of those sort of real-time activities between players. Um, and it, it works like a dream. That's actually quite awesome, and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it sounds like it's very well suited to real-time applications, which, interestingly enough, comes back to where it originated in telecommunications. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe let's start pulling a bit up the stack and, and chat about Elixir and its roots. I know, uh, I think it's Joseph Alim is the main driver behind Elixir. And he, I remember he's a long-time Rubyist. How much of that do you guys think shows in the language that he tried to make Ruby run in Elixir or did he try and take the best ideas and from that build something brand new on top of, of Erlang? I think a lot of people say, you know, Elixir is just, it's Erlang, but with Ruby. And that's definitely not true. Elixir takes a host of things from different languages. It does lean um, in some certain areas heavily on Ruby's because of Joseph Williams, where it comes from. Um, it does lean heavily on the Ruby syntax and stuff, but it's definitely not Ruby. It's, it's, it's different entirely. And at the same time, I love writing Alexa just as much, actually even more so than I did, uh, or I do love writing Ruby because it's that same happiness that um, comes through, but it's, it's, it's a whole different language in its own. Yeah, I think the language in itself is, you can't really judge just the language. You need to judge the language and its ecosystem. And I think Jose created Alexa not just because he wanted a better Ruby, um, I think he created it because he was wanting to write better code. And it, the, his path is sort of an extension of that, um, wanting to write better, better code. Um, and he realized the benefits of functional um, programming and sort of for the developer as well as for the system, you know, because you need to balance um, the happiness of the developer and the productive, productiveness of the developer or whatever with the performance of the system and, and um how well it, it runs and how scalable and how reliable it is, you know, the code that you write. One of the uh, things that um, uh, I see often, a lot of Erlang guys say is it's, it's not fun to write Erlang. Um, and it's also the productivity is not that great. The tool set, um, you know, for all its funnies, Ruby gems are awesome to just pull in something and Erlang doesn't have that stuff. I mean, it didn't have a package manager for a very long time. And all of these things now with the Elixir community and a lot of people coming from Ruby, you're not getting that, that love, if I can put it that way. Yeah, so you guys have both kind of alluded to the, the happiness factor. You know, uh, Matt's in the Ruby space talks about optimizing for developer happiness. What kinds of things do you see in Elixir that give you that that joy? For me, um, it's related not necessarily to um, sort of how beautiful the code is or how elegant the code is, but more how understandable and simple the code is. Because if I say in Ruby, 10 dot times or 10 dot um, months, um, I know in Rails, sorry, because I've written a lot of code, I know exactly what it's going to do, but actually finding the definition of that method is sometimes not very easy to find, right? don't know if it's from the language, is it from the framework, is it a domain method that I added on the class, whereas Elixir sort of provides 
a very transparent way um, of seeing where the logic is lying. Um, so because it's functional, you uh, organize your code into modules um, and the functions take data and return data. And the functions can also do um, side effects. So those are basically the two things that you look out for. Um, you say module.function name, give it data. You expect it to return data or to cause some side effect. That's basically all <laughs> as a developer that you need to worry about. So this, this is functional and, and the way that Elixir handles it. So it's got the normal um, stuff, the Ruby syntax, and like I said, the package manager and mix the compile tool, which I guess we can talk about a bit later. But how awesome piping is handled in, in Elixir. That's just uh, piping works so great in Elixir. I, I did F-sharp before, and piping was awesome in F-sharp as well, but Elixir just takes it to next level. The small things, like most of the, the functions are designed that... So with pi pi piping, what normally happens is you would pip in from the one process to another process, uh, like bash commands and stuff. And the first argument of the thing that you're piping into will be the one that you're piping out of. So to give an example, if you're piping from enum.take10 to something else, that obviously that 10 that you've just taken will be piped to enum.filter or enum.map or whatever. And with Elixir, most of the functions... I've not run into one where it's not logically done, where the pipe is the first one and whatever comes after is later. And things like, like I mentioned, OTP, that, that makes me happy to be able to do stuff so easily in other languages where it's so hard to do. Um, pattern matching in Elixir is just out of this world awesome like that that just makes me happy whenever i show somebody any alexa i show them the pattern matching first because it's it may it opens up this world of possibilities that you've never thought of yeah something that really stands out for me is when i find i'm i'm writing a bit of alexa i find that it leads me to write good code it's it, it leads you to write function definitions that are focused on doing one thing like i think that's a side effect of the pattern matching where it does like a function dispatch based on the parameters that you give a function and that means each function definition for each um case or branch of execution i guess has clearly defined um code there's no if between them but implicitly you look at the function definition and there's uh, it's called a guard, but it's basically an inline condition that says um, only do only run this function if this condition, and you know exactly if that condition is satisfied, this is the code that'll be run and nothing else. Yeah, and I think building on that, uh, so a lot of languages just return nulls or empty or whatever, and what cool style that Elixir's been doing, it's in the base framework, or in the core features, and a lot of uh, the community takes this as well. But if you return something, return a tuple, and the first one would be an atom or like a symbol in Ruby, and it would be colon OK, comma, and then whatever value you're returning. Um, and then what will Elixir will do is that first one, it will match against it, and it will be 
if it's colon okay, uh, it will just say match, that's fine, and then the second argument gets chucked into a variable. But if it's wrong, then it will throw an exception, or um, normally you won't want it to throw an exception. If you're expecting it, you'll have a case like Simon mentioned, and then it will just handle the other path gracefully. But you at least know this was fine or this was not fine. So how does the the error handling story work that you mentioned exceptions and throwing exceptions uh, is that a clean story in elixir um, or how does elixir handle that so um simon mentioned it a bit earlier about the supervision tree so elixir and erlang and all of them say if it fails fail fast and fail horribly so i haven't worked too much with the supervision tree so i think simon might be able to help uh, or add on it as well but basically what it says is the supervision tree is exactly that you have a tree of supervisors so you can say for this one if it fails then then retry it in itself or fall up to some other logic that knows how to retry it um etc so you almost never want to throw exceptions just in in by itself but if it does fail make it fail and let some other process retry it. so a good example will be an SMTP server. We don't want your code to to fail um, when it throws that, or, or not retry. So you'll have this little process that it will throw the SMTP server. The parent process will know what to do, and it will just retry sending that email. Yeah, I think the the idea is that you um, return a tuple OK error um, depending on uh, output that you want to handle. And everything else is basically just to identify what crashed the virtual process and have the supervisor start up that process again um, to receive the next request. So it's like a fail fast strategy. And recover fast. But yeah, and recover fast, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> Simon, I know I've seen you play with, with Phoenix a bit. So can you maybe tell us what that's about and how phoenix builds on top of all these layers that we've now mentioned like supervision trees like reliable code hot code swapping package managers all of this so if we wrap this up together we want to build websites i've got right phoenix is for building websites yeah phoenix has an interesting story and before i say anything about phoenix i just want you to forget anything you know about rails because phoenix is not rails um, I think Phoenix aims to solve some of the problems that Rails solved when it was first created, um, and it follows some of the same patterns. Um, it's like a, it's an MVC architecture, um, but it's it's just not the same. Um, it's really interesting though. Phoenix started as just being um, a real-time um, sort of pub-sub server, and um, Chris McCord, the guy who wrote it, realized um, he's onto something really good. So he built in um, sort of other layers. So he built in um, the NVC architecture. He built in a view layer, which is missing from Rails. Um, and yeah, I just see a lot of the decisions that go into Phoenix um, being solutions to problems that we have in Rails. You know, um, for example, Ecto, which is the um, the recommended uh, database adapter, I guess. Um, Ecto fails or it, it raises an exception if you um, 
try access data that is not preloaded. So if you have users have an address and in your users template, you say users.address, it'll actually throw an exception and won't compile. Um, it'll say you need to preload the user's address because this is a known uh, performance issue and we don't want to lead you down this path. We want you to um, write efficient code um, you know, going forward. And I, I, I really like that about, about Phoenix. The cool thing, I think the, the tagline for Phoenix, if you, if you want that, is um, productive web app development um, that is fast and reliable. So I think the tagline is like, Ruby apps are really productive um, or, or quick to build. Um, but over time, they become a nightmare to maintain. And over time, they become a performance um, problem. And uh, Phoenix sort of aims to solve those problems. That sounds very tempting, I must say. I understand <laughs> kind of where that guy's coming from. Yeah, I think we've all seen Rails, well, I think code in general, fall into states of disrepair. Yeah, and it's it's really great. The the Elixir community is in in a lot in many ways is sort of mirroring the early Ruby community. Like, it's not just Rails. There's um, things. There's a there's a there's another one called Dynamo. That's another web app framework. Um, there's Ecto, but there's also another one called Mobius, um, which is a more functional take on uh, like a SQL query language. Um, so the whole ecosystem and the people involved. Um, I must say, actually, that's probably my favorite thing about um, Elixir at the moment is just the people um, have like the mince one attitude, um, which I really, really appreciate. One of the coolest things uh, was when I had this random error. Uh, I'll try and think of what it was in Elixir. And I was bashing my head against it for two or three hours because things like this happened in functional languages. Um, but after a while, I just didn't know what to do else and I decided you know let me go on the website and on the website it says join this channel if you have any questions and I and I asked the question on there and within a couple of of minutes Jose Valim himself answers my question um, and it's just it's so awesome that you know I'm just trying out this language and the language creator actually um, you know answers me that was just so cool and everybody is so helpful trying to get you down the right path. Um, it's very cool. And at the same time, they uh, Jose Valim in his answer said, oh, I can remember what it was now. Um, but Jose Valim said, this is how we do it. If you're not happy with it, then that's fine. But this is how we do it, and these are the reasons. That's great. Yeah, Jose and the whole community is really um, supportive in explaining um, the, the why behind their decisions, which is really cool. It's not just do it this way. Um, it's this is the way that we do it, and this is why it's the best way to do it that way. And if you have a better way to do it, you know, um, pitch in and let's let's discuss it. Yeah, one of the cool things is a lot of the things that don't make it into Elixir right at that point in time. Um, if somebody has a better idea, you can always build it, and then Elixir will bring it in. Uh, like the logger was was uh, out of band package uh, previously and now it's in Elixir itself because I think Joseph Alem himself wrote it and perfected it and then they pulled it in um, but it wasn't the first way they did it. Yeah it sounds like you've got a very heavy influence from some of those well from the Rubyist side as well well you've got Joseph Alem 
ex-Rubyist as a language creator. But Dave Thomas has also been one of the guys uh, very vocal about Elixir. And I know he's written a book for PragProg recently, okay, recently, probably more than a year ago now, uh, about Elixir. Uh, have either of you guys gone through that book? I've started um, working on it. I must be honest, I haven't gone far, but um, what I've seen so far is good. This would actually be a good time to mention the book club channel in ZA Developers Slack team. <laughs> um, I've started a book club channel where we we started today actually with programming Elixir by Dave Thomas, and we're taking it um, sort of at a sustainable pace, and we're going to do the exercises together and sort of discuss it. I've actually done the whole book already, um, but it's just a fantastic resource to learn the language itself. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've joined the channel. <laughs> you know what? It should be noted that Elixir itself is its not necessarily an extremely young language. I think it's about four years old already. Um, Phoenix itself is quite new, um, but Elixir is being used in production by several, um, I think they were primarily Ruby houses, but now they've um, taken on Elixir and they've sort of made their bets on Elixir, I guess. Yeah, and uh, you know, one of the things that Elixir has has going for it is the fact that it's running under Erlang. So if you're scared about running Elixir, go look at the the stories about Erlang. Like, because again, it all compiles down to Erlang. That that is rock solid stuff. So how much of the stuff from the Elixir community is working its way back into Erlang now? You've got a lot of new eyes coming into what's essentially one community, right? I think I've seen a lot of Erlang guys go to Elixir. I don't know about so much about how much goes into Erlang, but the thing with Erlang is that it doesn't change often. It's very slow moving. You can imagine it comes from the eighties. Um, so it is very slow moving. And that's the cool thing is putting the stuff into Elixir. Elixir is not afraid to move fast. Um, so I think it's more the, the the other way is you know um i can't remember who said it but they said elixir is all the good of erlang without the bad stuff or mostly the bad stuff so yeah it's it's, it's sort of the other way around so what is mix in elixir mix is the compiler so it's it's quite funny um <laughs> Elixir and Mix. Um, so if you if you just look at that reference, it's it's literally the compiler, and I don't know if they've got it in yet, but they've been talking about it, it being a deploy tool as well. But uh, it you've got this Mix Mix um, file like you would have in a JS package config or whatever, and it puts everything in there, and you load your dependencies in there or uh, other applications that you might pull in. Um, in there, and then when you compile, it basically will go and look at this. Uh, it compiles to a .app file, but you get two types of Elixir files: so exs, which is a script file, um, and ex, which which needs to be compiled. So Mix will go and compile your app for you, and you can run. I use this a lot. I don't see it a lot in other examples, but eScript. So Mix compiles an eScript, which means you can then easily um, hit it on the command line. So eScript, and then normally like you would run any uh, bash commands. So yeah, 
Mix compiles your apps for you, Mix runs your tests for you, and a whole host of other stuff to easily see. You can just say Mix help, and it will tell you exactly what you can do. Is it kind of like the NPM of Elixir? In, the, in that it kind of contains both the, the make side of things as well, where you could, um, it's your build tool plus other things as well. Yeah, it's, it's not exactly a one-to-one mapping. Um, so if, if I can mention a couple of the, the parallels to Ruby. So if you have IRB and Pry in Ruby, and you have IEX in Elixir, and I think that's pretty much a one-to-one mapping. Um, in Ruby, you have rake, um, and rake translates to um, mix, but mix also takes on some responsibilities, bundler in Ruby. Um, bundler in Ruby maps to hex in Elixir, which is like a package manager. So there's a bit of overlap between um, mix and uh, rake and bundler, like their responsibilities mix a bit. Um, but I know that um, this, in the same way that you would write a rake task um, in your application, you would a, a package in Elixir can register a mix task and then you can call that from mix. So if I've used mix to compile down my app now, how difficult is it to get that thing running on a cloud box somewhere as the simplest possible way, ignoring all kind of like monitoring and, and DevOpsy side? Is it as simple as shipping the binary app and just telling Beam to run this thing? Yes. In the short sense, yes. I mean, you like I mentioned, you you have eScript. So eScript is literally a binary file that you can transfer over and you can just say eScript. Obviously, Elixir and Erlang needs to be installed, but you can just say eScript and then the file name and that will run. If you want to pass arguments, you can. Um, otherwise, if you can just, you, you can just use mix compile um, on that side as well. And then you would literally use IEX uppercase S and then... Um, whatever else, and it will start an IEX session up for you with the modules and everything already loaded. And it's statically compiled with all its dependencies. Yes, yeah, so Mix does get, so uh, Mix will moan if it can't find the dependencies and stuff, or it will pull it down um, if you say Mix uh, compile, or you can, uh, before that, say Mix get, and then it will pull the dependencies for you. And it, it compiles those dependencies as well. I guess my real question in my head was actually, can I sit on the Mac and compile and just upload it to an Ubuntu box and given Erlang's there, it will run. I don't know the nature of Erlang if it just works that way. Yeah, does it need a runtime installed on the server to be able to run the compiled binary? Definitely. Uh, I don't think actually managing servers in Erlang is the easiest task. So I think... Um, Deployment is actually something that Erlang is very not good at because I don't think they actually deploy um, very often the application from like a non-running state to a running state. It's like something they do once <laughs> and then <laughs> they're pushing um, hot code. And it's something that the Erlang community is actually excited about Elixir coming in. Um, our, I just want to touch on, remember you asked that question, how does, how does the Erlang community feel about Elixir? I think um, they're excited about the tooling, basically, um, because it's addressing a lot of the pain points in Erlang. Um, I think Erlang developers um, struggle with deployments. Yeah, I so so I've got a box running um, in cloud, 
and I develop on my Mac locally, and maybe I'm cheating a little bit because <laughs> it is it's not production in the real sense yet. But all I do is I'll I'll um, pull from source, and then I'll compile on that machine, so it will compile to Ubuntu um, very easily. Um, but yeah, so so it's it it compiles very easily on that machine. I've not had the issues where. Uh, you know, that I've had in Ruby with the C plus, uh, the C compile that doesn't work on this platform and that platform with, with the Mac and, and, uh, Ubuntu it. I've not had any issues. That's good to know. I'm just thinking out loud from a Docker compile kind of state, but then it would be doing it inside that Ubuntu container already. I was just curious. Yeah. I mean, I've got a Docker running. Um, I can't exactly remember how, how hard it was, but I think it was it was a cinch to get it running, pull the code, and then just run with it. Cool. So, say I'm sold. Say I want to go and pattern match the world after we're done recording. Where do I start? The Elixir language is great and all of that, and sometimes the documentation is not so much. But the Elixir site, elixir-lang.org, has a getting started guide and I keep on forgetting that it's a getting started guide because this is so extensive. It starts from the basics over to OTP and all of that. So I would say definitely, if you want to know Alexa, start there, go through that um, as a as a starting point. Yeah, definitely. It takes it. It has like a narrative where they take you through um, the basic stuff, and then it starts with, "Okay, we're going to build a distributed key value store." And I was like, "Well, crap! This is going to be really complicated." And then they just ease you into it and they, they um, introduce concept after concept and you just think, wow, this is really awesome. Like it ends here and then just more and more awesome comes. <laughs> yeah, that, that more and more awesome is definitely true. I, <laughs> you, you sit and um, I've, I've recently had the pain or the pleasure to do a lot of messaging and stuff in .NET and that's way forward for me as I want to do messaging a lot. And with with um, Elixir, it was crazy easy to build something up um, where you can pass measures from one process to another. And all of this is explained in the getting started guide. So from lists to basic data types, all the way up to the OTP stuff as well. And then the other one is Elixir subs. So I, I've, I'm going to buy a subscription to it um, next month or so. So it's $9, very cheap. But it's small sub videos to just get your feet wet in the stuff and then it goes and progresses from there as well. I think programming Elixir that we mentioned the book earlier is actually also a really good resource if you want to dig more deeper into the language, understand a little bit of reasoning behind um, the different ways to write Elixir and what is idiomatic Elixir. But something that I can say is learning Elixir, you learn a lot about Erlang as well, obviously. Um, and that and that makes it sort of stretch it stretches your mind a lot. That's all I guess that's also a good thing that it's not trying to hide Erlang away from you. It's like know what you're running on, what the abstraction is, and how to leverage it. Yeah. Yeah, and you can easily, easily, easily call into the Erlang um uh, functions as well very easily would you need to do that often or is that for very rare cases i'm just curious um sometimes so for instance i had to use mail um you would think that this is a solved problem in almost any languages but just sending a simple email tr turned out to be 
so hard for me to get a package that just in a condensed way does it. So you get a lot of Erlang packages that you would call or that you could use because it's not written in Elixir yet. Or what I did was I literally just went and did uh, Ruby code. And yeah, I can't remember the package now. I'll give it later. But it, it's basically a package to call shell commands um, very easily. Um, but yeah, often you do write, uh, you might have Erlang. To me, it's not that often anymore. Kenny, it is actually really helpful. I think one of the main problems with Erlang is that its, its standard library is so fragmented. So like, especially the string library, it's like uh, there's so many different ways to call, call different functions and functions have different argument lists and, you know, it's a bit confusing. And a lot of what Elixir does is standardize that. Elixir introduces a string class, which is basically a binary interpreted as UTF-8. And I don't know if you've ever read that blog post, why the string class is broken. The Elixir string class sort of passes all those tests. Um, and a lot of, because Erlang is so mature, a lot of Elixir packages, all they do is basically wrap a certain part of the Erlang, um, you know, functions with like a really nice interface where you do use from Elixir. Yeah, that's that's a lot of the packages just do that and it makes it just the little bits that you need. Just one thing that I just remembered um from the string class, it's actually quite funny. A lot of the uh in the in the library of or the base class stuff in Elixir, it uses macros extensively. So for instance, for the I think it's the string class uses it as well. Um, Simon, you can correct me, but it basically takes a file when it compiles it and it uses that to write a macro uh, with the UTF-8 stuff as well. Um, so it uses macros extensively as well. It works very, very well. Sounds like at the foundation level, it's very well thought out. So I'd say definitely something to keep, keep in mind, keep learning. Yeah, definitely. Guys, shall we start heading to some picks? Uh, okay, let's let our guests go first. Simon, have you got picks for us? I do. So uh, I have two picks. Um, the first we've already discussed um, is Programming Elixir by Dave Summers. It's really, really a great way um, as an introduction to Elixir, but as well as an introduction to functional um, thinking. Um, and I've really enjoyed it. It's sort of stretched my mind. Um, and my second pick is a Ruby pick. Um, and it's a gem called Pundit, and it's just a, such a sane way to approach authorization. Um, it basically encapsulates authorization rules into plain old Ruby objects um, and provides a really clean, um, explicit interface to access those policies. And um, yeah, I've just been really enjoying it in my own code. Thanks. Fear? Yeah, so... Uh... I've mentioned the getting started guide, which I would really recommend. It won't take you long and you'll get a lot of the language. Uh, Lexus apps, definitely look into that one. Um, and then there's one package called porcelain in Elixir. I love, 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 love doing, uh, different languages a solution in different languages because you get to do the benefits of those languages or use the benefits of those languages for what they're great and where they're not good you can just get something else so the package porcelain that i alluded to earlier allows you to very easily call out to shell and it hand handles it very well so you can bite to uh, or call out to grep and it will uh, have a standard out 
and standard in back in. Um, so that's very cool. Very cool. Kenneth, you want to give us some picks? <clears throat> Definitely. Uh, GetSentry.com. Yeah, you can host it yourself or you can pay the, them for a plan. We started rolling it out again today with another team. It's the first time they've had a system like this, and it's been absolutely amazing to see how the test messages started flooding into Slack. And suddenly Slack started making a lot of sense as well. It's starting to become a nervous system for the team. And then I know I've picked or at least praised Kubernetes in the past, but I spent some time with it over the weekend. And again today, just setting up a, a cluster, it is really a fantastic way to deploy your Docker containers. Then that's mine. Well, then my picks will be, so this weekend was Global Day of Code Retreat, and it was really fun to just meet up with a whole lot of developers, see people learning, see people trying test-driven development and pair programming for the first time and to see how they react to all of that. So if you haven't done a code retreat, please look out for the next one. Uh, Driven Alliance and in reality tend to host them fairly regularly, at least once every quarter. So yeah, code retreat and Conway's Game of Life that kind of go together. Then next up, uh, the Clean Coder book by Uncle Bob. Just a handbook on how to conduct yourself professionally in the software space. And it really puts you in the mindset of, you know, taking responsibility for the work that you do, for your career, for your choices. It just really gets you, gets to a sane mindset for how to conduct yourself as a developer. And I really enjoyed the read. It's more of a soft skills book, not not very technical, but very worthwhile reading. So yeah, that's it for me. Cool guys, well that wraps it up then for episode 18 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>